Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great because it's Easter. Happy Easter. Thank you. Uh, it, it's the first Easter. One of the great things about living in Lebanon, for those of you who don't know, is that we get two Easters. <laughs> so this week is the Western Church. Next week is going to be the Eastern Church. And so we get like these nice, long, like me personally, I get three day weekends, two weekends in a row, which is amazing. Yeah. Perks of confessionalism. Yeah. <laughs> so this is our fourth episode in uh, the historical figures series. So we had episode 18 on Bashir Jmail. We had episode 35 on Rafi Hariri, 38 on Kamal Jumblat. And this is episode 43 about Fuad Shab. The giant president who is known by people as one of the good presidents we have, but few people know anything about him. But before going into Fuad Shahab, maybe take us into the news, Ben. Yeah, we had a lot of things that go on this week. Um, very quickly, we're, we're going to knock this out and then get to Shahab. We, of course, had the election, which we talked about last week uh, and we covered. And we, we made the right call. We said Jamal was going to win. And she did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was... Not a hard call to make. <laughs> uh, she, she won with like 68% of the vote. And uh, uh, Yahya Maulud, the civil society candidate or the opposition candidate, he actually came in second, which I think is very important. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, like a, a distant second, but still second. Uh, if he had come in third behind Ms. Ahdeb, then there would be a problem. Like we would be questioning whether Maulud has any sort of future in politics, whether civil society and that sort of movement has any sort of future in politics. But because he came in second, I, I think that showed that, oh, no, like he, he is potentially a serious contender in the future. Send um, a good message. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the problem was turnout, and, and turnout was just 12.5%. This is something that we talked about last week, you know, and, and this is because well, there was no fucking competition, you know, and all of the Zoma like lined up behind Jumeli, with the exception of Karami, who boycotted. And then the other reason for the low turnout is people are just fed the fuck up in, in Tripoli with like disillusion with politics. They, they think nothing is being done for them. Uh, none of their actual concerns, which are basically unemployment and investment are being addressed. And for this reason, a lot of them just like didn't show up to vote. And I, I think this is really the huge cry. Like this is a crisis, honestly, for all of the uh, political leaders in Tripoli. Uh, it should be a wake up call for all of them. Um, but especially for Hariri, because this was his candidate and he is sort of the he is the primary Sunni figure in the country and therefore in Tripoli. Exactly. And to evidence what you're saying, I mean, the last parliamentary elections in, in 2018 also saw very low turnout. One of the lowest turnouts in Lebanon, uh, 36%. And this was the proof that despite the huge mobilization of politicians of Tripoli uh, on sectarian and other basis, it was not enough to mobilize people to vote because people are completely alienated from the political process. Uh, this week, Parliament also met. They passed a bill on electricity to allow the tendering process to go forward. Uh, so that is continuing. Of course, we covered this. We had Jessica Obeid uh, uh, a few weeks back on the on the program talking about the, the plan. So it's moving forward, it seems. Also at Parliament, though, the, the big sort of thing that happened was Hariri announced that there would be huge, massive austerity in the next budget. And, and he, he said it would be unlike anything that has been implemented in the history of Lebanon. And he said, we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to fall into a catastrophe. Literally, we have s such huge financial problems that we have got to make these drastic, huge cuts everywhere. Um, we, don't, we don't know what these cuts are. Nobody has actually seen the budget outside of like a very small group of people at the very top of politics. 
but we know some some outlines of what these cuts are. They're coming out. Uh, Basile tweeted about potential cuts for state employees as far as their salaries. Mm-hmm. You know, they just got the salary increase in 2017, and Basile already, it seems, is saying, oh, well, we need to take that back at, at least on, on a temporary basis until the state's finances are fixed. And, and that caused a huge, huge backlash. There were protests uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, civil servants, retirees, military uh, members, all coming out on the street. They, they blocked some roads, I think, on Tuesday. Uh, the, uh, on Wednesday, a lot of people, teachers included, went on strike. Mm-hmm. This is... And this this backlash, I think they weren't quite the the political leaders. I don't think were quite expecting this large of a backlash, but it it, it was absolutely huge. And it I think it it was a wake up call for them that oh no no maybe we need to uh, look at this a little bit more and figure out how to sell this to the public. There was supposed to be a cabinet session on Thursday where they talked about the budget this week. Mm. It didn't happen. They put it off specifically because they needed more time to talk about the budget and the austerity measures and all of that stuff. Now, Basile tweeted afterwards that, oh, no, like uh, what I said was sort of taken out of context. Really, there are like five different areas that we're we're going to be looking at, you know, doing fiscal measures in like tax collection, increasing that. Of course, salaries, uh, uh, something I think is probably a good thing. He said uh, debt servicing, actually, which sounds kind of scary, right? Like, oh, wait, is, is Lebanon not going to f- live up to its obligations on, on debt service? Mm-hmm. Or, no, probably not. Like, apparently there's this idea that's being floated around where Lebanon might issue uh, uh, treasury bills that would carry zero interest. And basically the banks, local banks who have been profiting massively off of the government's debt would be told, no, you're going to buy this. And, you know, you're going to subscribe to these uh, treasury bills and you're not going to get anything out of it. You're just going to save the state. Now, whether that actually happens or not is another question, but it is probably a good idea that's being bandied about right now. So I think what, one of the things that is interesting about this this last week is that austerity suddenly became the center of, of you know public discourse. And a lot of these politicians are just jumping in saying, no, this is not what we want to do. We, we're not going to touch public servants' salary like Shamar Rukas from FPM or Ali Hassan Khalil, the finance minister, who said, no, trust me, you're going to see this in the budget. We didn't cut the salaries, etc. The idea is, although these people are trying to kind of jump on the wave of, of protests uh, against austerity or this side of austerity specifically, at least now we're having a discussion about, you know, economic policy or like part of economic policy for the first time. These establishing politicians are always kind of alienating people from discussion of economics. And now suddenly they have to explain to people what they're going to do with public finances. And Ali Hassan Khalil went with Marcel Ghanem for a whole hour and a half where he was like discussing how, you know, uh, this uh, this crisis will be overcome or whatever. And he played the, the role of the opposition. He was like, why is there corruption here? Why are these people earning more than they should? I will look into this and I will look into that. And he was like kind of playing the populist uh, role. And on the other hand, you know, Walid Jumblatz MP Bilal Abdullah went to the streets and he was like, it's time to, to reverse the economic policy of, you know, only favoring the rich, etc. It's uh, We cannot uh, allow this paradigm to continue. So everyone's trying to co-opt this this movement or this this anger. At the same time, I see it as a very positive sign and civil society or independent political groups should build on this moment to start, you know, mobilizing politically based on these things because austerity has not worked anywhere, really anywhere, and it will not work in Lebanon. Yeah, agreed. 
quickly before we get to uh, Shahab, I do want to make sort of a correction. Uh, last month, when Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, was in town, we did a podcast about his visit. And when we recorded, he had not given interviews to the media, and I made a point that he had not done this. But on that day, he actually did give two interviews, so I just want to correct the record there. He gave one interview to MTV, which was really sort of a blah, not really worth anything interview. Uh, but then the the interview with Sky News, uh, he gave to uh, Heba Nasser of Sky News. That's You should really go and read it. Uh, it's on the State Department's website. It is jaw-dropping. Just the level of condescension yeah. from him, and, and, as well as just like his general untethering from reality. He clearly does not know what he's talking about, but he is very, very convinced that he does. Nasser asks him, and I'm reading from the transcript here, but it was pretty clear that the Lebanese prime minister and even the president, the Lebanese president, weren't on the same page with you. Pompeo responds, yeah, I don't think that's true. I think that's false. <sighs> Nasser, but we already, we already listened to America, something inaudible. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, it's just false. You're just wrong. Nasser, so I am mixed up. Pompeo, yeah, but you're just wrong. That's okay. You're very talented. Oh my god. Oh, it, 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 Disgusting. It, 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 it's ridiculous because her question, no, she was absolutely right. First off, of course, it, it, and and it was a very legitimate question. And but the way that he was just so condescending, it's just like, oh, it's it's okay. That's okay. You're very talented. Like, oh my god, that that is on a new level. Yeah, 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 totally. There's nothing to respect about that. That was a really low moment. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I highly encourage all of you to go and read it for yourself. It's on the State Department's uh, website. They're obviously very proud of this. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's the news from the alternate reality scape. Uh, but, but let's get back to reality uh, and this week's topic, Fuad Shahab. Yeah, I'm really excited about this topic because... This is one of the most, you know, um, romanticized presidents in our history. Not because he was a leader of political movement, like, you know, Bashir Jmail, which we spoke about, or other people who were, you know, had this kind of significance. No, he represents the state as a project. And we're going to talk about that later. But I- I've been asking people for the last week what they know about Fahad young people. And most of them either say they don't know anything, or say they don't know anything, and then they say they have a good impression of him. Like, I would say, do you know anything about Fahad They say no. Was he good or bad? Good. And this was very interesting, right? It's been very established in the kind of ideological hegemony of the Lebanese people that this guy was good, but no one knows really anything about him. So let's go into, let's see who this guy is, right? Fuad Shab is a military guy. His whole career was in the military. He joined the army, which was then called the Syrian cavalry, as a private and went all the way up. So from the lowest to the highest, he became brigadier general in 1944, and then he became army commander. So he was the first army commander after Lebanon's independence. But as an army commander, he didn't really have a chance to be, you know, to have a lot of peace of mind because from the moment he took in, few years later, the crisis began. First, we had the 1952 crisis, which was the uprising by, you know, a coalition of Jumblat, Kamal Jumblat and Kamil Shamoun against Bashar al-Khuri and his rule. And this is when Kamil Shamoun became president. And then ironically, six years later, Kamil Shamoun was the president to overthrow. And we have the huge rebellion against him um, by a huge political coalition. And after this crisis is when Fuad Shab emerges as kind of the national hero. So it's, let's give some background. Shamoun was president, became president in 1952. It's the same time when 
Nasser, Abdel, Jamal Abdel Nasser became president in Egypt. And uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser was leading this Arab nationalist movement, uh, the Arabist movement, and it had a lot of influence in Lebanon. On the other hand, Kamil Shamoun had a very different orientation. He was a very pro-Western kind of um, politician. He tried to align Lebanon completely with the U.S. foreign policy. And the biggest moments in that was first the Suez crisis in 1956, when three countries, Britain, France and Israel, attacked Egypt. And Shamoun stood out from among Arab leaders because he refused to cut diplomatic ties with France and with Britain uh, after their attacks. And moreover, he kind of subscribed to the Eisenhower Doctrine, which was a policy of US President Eisenhower back then, to defend any country that is facing a communist threat. And Shamoun officially subscribed to that doctrine. And later on, as we will see, he actually requested US military intervention. So basically, this Arabist versus Western thing was the, the, the headline of the whole crisis, the background of the crisis. But also, Shamoun was heading a system that was extremely corrupt. Everyone was dissatisfied with, his, with the level of corruption in his administration. And this is the reason why a lot of people who were not Arab nationalists were rallying against him as well. Some of them were Lebanese nationalists, some of them were Christian Lebanese nationalists, but they were very fed up with the Shamoun administration. And in 1958, after a lot of political escalation, these crises evolved into armed uh, clashes. Uh, they were sparked by the assassination of a prominent anti-Shamoun figure. It was Nasib Matni, the editor-in-chief of one of the leftist newspapers. And general strikes and demonstrations followed that after uh, Matni's funeral. And they turned into crashes in Tripoli, in West Beirut, and in Shouf. So we had here kind of three main pillars of this anti-Shamoun movement. We had in Tripoli... Rashid Karami, which we've mentioned many times on this podcast, in West Beirut, Saab Salam, and in Shufan Alay Kamal Jumblat. So, Fuad Shahab was army commander, and Shamoun asked him to be very aggressive to know to crush the insurrection. But Fuad Shahab had, had a very different perspective on the issue. He kind of adopted a policy of active neutrality, basically stopping the insurgents from gaining any major strategic points, most importantly the airports and the major highways, but not really waging war against them, not creating an enmity with them. He stopped the Tripoli offensive and he prevented Jumblat, most importantly, he prevented Jumblat from taking over the airport and the Beirut-Damascus road. And this, this is when one of the most, like, the fiercest battles happened, the most costly for the rebels as well. So this continued until July. And in July, uh, Shamon took it to the next level. He was losing. Uh, Military-wise, like, in terms of territory, territory, not strategic points, um, the opposition was kind of winning, and Shamoun requested the intervention of the U.S. military in Lebanon, uh, according to the Eisenhower doc- Doctrine. And why this happened in July specifically, it was because a revolt had happened in Iraq, and the whole royal family was killed, and Shamoun was telling the Americans, if you don't intervene now, another pro-Western regime would fall by, you know, supporters of communist, of Soviet communism or whatever. So he was using this card, although he had requested before the American intervention, but Eisenhower is very hesitant. At this point, he was like, OK, I'm, I'm sending the troops. 15,000 American troops arrive in Lebanon, uh, part of the Blue Bat operation. And Shahab, as an army commander, was very concerned about this because he was not at all happy to see foreign troops in Lebanon. This suddenly, suddenly we have we are kind of ruled by the Americans in one second. This didn't make any any sense historically to him. Is this a, reto- a return to colonialism, etc.? All of these questions that come to mind. But he was forced to kind of escort as the army leader the Americans into these strategic points and most importantly the airport because there was a lot of threats and also because we had um, 
information or at least Trabulsi, Fawaz Trabulsi uh, mentions in his book that the Americans told Fuad Shahab that they had nuclear warheads on their Navy's sixth fleet, uh, which was backing up the troops that were in Lebanon. Anyway, he didn't really have a choice, but this was the moment when a political solution had to happen. And this political solution was basically that Fuad Shahab would become the next president of Lebanon because he was kind of respected and favored by a lot of people, people who, are, who were parts of the rebels as well as people who were pro-Shamoun. And, and this makes sense, right? Because he, wa- he already was this figure that was sort of like looked to in times of crisis. Rewinding back to 1952 and the, the resignation of Bashar al-Khuri, what happened there? Well, before anybody was elected, uh, Bashar al-Khuri said, okay, Fuad Shahab, the commander of the army, is in charge. I'm, I'm resigning, but he's going to be the prime minister and he's going to mm-hmm. be the president until you have a new president. And that's what happened. Fuad Shahab was technically like the acting president for like four days until Camille Sharon was elected. And he was the prime minister un- until a government was formed. So about 12 days, he was the guy who was looked to in that situation. Also during the Suez crisis, when you know the government resigned in protest at Shamon's refusal to cut ties with France and Britain, who came in? Uh, well, a new government, and it had, this new government had Fuad Shahab as Minister of Defense. Mm-hmm. So he was already this guy that was like, okay, in times of crisis, he's the guy who's going to come in and sort of like solve everything and be somebody who's trusted by all sides. Exactly. So it made sense, uh, as you're saying. And in 1958, he was elected president. And he stayed there for six years, only one term. And one thing to mention here is that not everyone was happy about it, although he was favored by a lot of people. We had Raymond Iddi. Uh, one of the major Christian figures at that time, part of the constitutionalist bloc, who was opposed to Shahab because he was an army commander. And he said, we should not, you know, allow this precedent of army commanders becoming presidents. Army commanders do not belong in the political system. And this was a point that was, you know, kind of, it, it didn't leave a historical mark, but it's important to mention it because it has some repercussions later, as we will probably be talking about. Yeah, what, one of the things that I, I think you'll notice as we go through Fuad Shahab is that he set a lot of precedents. Some of them mundane and some of them very, very important. And this was an important one, one of the army commander being elevated to the presidency. Exactly. So, Shahab's presidency could be seen as two parts. The first part is the first two years, until 1960. In these two years, his main task was basically restoring kind of national unity after the mini-civil war that had happened. However, he had a very, very big obstacle in the first three weeks of that attempt, because after the first uh, cabinet was formed, headed by Rashid Karami, who was a main part of the rebellion, yeah, don't forget that, Karami was kind of celebrating this government as a continuation of the, of the insurrection. And this rhetoric and the idea that the government was biased towards the opposition was... I mean, it's accurate, right? The government form- the, the government that was formed immediately in the immediate aftermath, uh, it was definitely like basically pro-opposition, right? It was, it, it was Karami and other people who were very like anti-Shamal. And this provoked the Kata'ab to uh, launch what has been called the counter-rebellion, uh, you know, against the 58th rebellion, where there were sectarian clashes. They were armed clashes with many, uh, on many fronts, and they took sectarian nature for three weeks until Shihab resigned the government and elected another one with the Kata'ib represented in it. Yeah, so he, he got off on the wrong foot, right? He, he started out with this cabinet uh, with, from Rashid Karami, which was sort of like went too far in the other direction, but he, he very quickly corrected 
course. Like that, that cabinet was only around for something like 20 days. And then he was like, no, 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 we're going to fix this. Uh, Rashid Karami, you're going to go back, but it's going to be a much smaller cabinet. And they formed a four-man cabinet. Uh, Rashid Karami, Hassan Aini. Aini, yes. Aini. <laughs> my, my pronunciation <laughs> is off. Uh, Raymond Edde and Pierre Jumeau. So this was, this was a, a really important thing. It was bringing in these other factions, the Jumeil and Edde, mm. bringing them into the tent and giving them like important portfolios as well. You know, the public works went to Jumeil, which allowed him mm. to sort of build up the party, allowed him to increase, you know, his patronage and, and his standing in the country. But the main idea behind this cabinet, the small cabinet for Shab, was that kind of to prevent another insurrection of any kind, you know, to bring in all of these big people who might be revolting in the future. And he kind of succeeded in that. This slogan under which he built this cabinet, La Ghalib wa la Maghloub, no victor, no loser. This kind of became a, a typical slogan that we heard at many points afterwards, uh, especially after the mini civil war in 2008, uh, the May 7 clashes, uh, where also we had the resolution in Qatar, which had this title more or less, La Ghalib wa la Maghloub. It became a typical thing after any violent uh, clashes that happen. Anyway, by October, the Americans were out, and uh, the other part of this two years, which was kind of reversing the anti-Arabist foreign policy of Shamoun, Shab held a major meeting with Nasser on the Lebanese-Syrian border. He kind of restored the good relations with Nasser. At the same time, he put his limits. You know, he told him, you have to respect Lebanese sovereignty, because most of the arms that came to the rebellion of 1958 came from Syria, which was part of the United Arab Republic, headed by Nasser at that point. Um, and Rashid Karami had even like brought up potentially triply breaking away from Lebanon and joining the UAR, right, exactly. but back during the rebellion. So this was hugely symbolic. It was also hugely symbolic that, you know, at this meeting, they, they had it on the border, literally on the border. Yeah. So the table was like on the border and Nasser was on the UAR side of the table and uh, Shahab was on the Lebanese side, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a big, big moment. And it was a big task that Shahab had to do, which is to kind of pause this whole crisis about Lebanon's identity and foreign policy, etc. for a while, which gave him some space to look internally. And this is the second major part of his presidency and maybe the part that everyone remembers. Fouad Shahab was a man of a huge reform agenda. Like he was not here just to be president and to, you know, not a Michel Sleiman kind of president. He was here to bring in a change, a drastic transformation of the country. He wanted to change the political system in a, in a some way. He wanted to change the, the development situation and he wanted to change society itself which would be clear for, for anyone who reads more about, you know, his personal thoughts and how he, he thought about society and his statements, etc. So this reform era, which would range from 1960 to 1964, had many titles. One of the main things is that Shahab had perceived the impact of having huge regional disparities in Lebanon, you know, remote areas not being developed enough. And this was a, a time where this topic was very prominent as well. We talked about Musa Sadr earlier, and we talked about how he built on this uh, situation, how he built all of his populist rhetoric and all of his movement of deprived based on the situation. And Fouad Shahab understood it very well. And he said that this would be one, would be one of the main like uh, slogans of this second part of his presidency aimed at reform. But overall, his biggest accomplishment or the biggest agenda was to create the state, basically. To create a huge bureaucracy that would counter the feudalist slash confessional political system that was ruling the country. 
So he wanted to kind of take away from the credibility and the popularity of these feudal lords that were controlling the country and were mobilizing people based on sectarian interests and to create another project, which is the state project. His cabinets passed plenty of decrees and completely transformed the public sector. They doubled the public administration sides by employing around 10,000 new civil servants. And how they were employed was as important as their number because they were employed through the Civil Service Council, which Fuad Shahab empowered and um, which he made independent because this was the council that would be the opposite of, you know, politicians employing people through patronage. Yeah, and this exists to this day. The Civil Service Council, Civil Civil Service Board, they basically, anybody who wants to work for the state, no, you, you have to first like take these examinations and we make sure that you're qualified and we only take the top people as opposed to like, oh, I'm, I've, I've got an in with Frangier or an in with Jumblat or something like that. Exactly. So he was trying to kind of defeat political favoritism in favor of uh, meritocracy which is something that, you know, that is a big problem today. And which is, which is why a lot of people today employed in the state are not employed through the Civil Service Council. They are employed through contracting, uh, which is the easy way for politicians to employ their supporters. Anyway, this was one of the main uh, achievements. Another one was the empowerment of the Central Inspection Bureau and also the Central Bank. He created the Central Bank of Lebanon in 1963, which had a huge role in controlling the banking sector and imposing some serious regulation on them, but also in empowering the the national currency. But while doing all of this, while empowering the state and the bureaucracy and filling it with technocrats and people who are not, you know, corrupt or politically motivated, etc. He was also very aware of the sectarian situation and he was not like an anti-sectarian person. He was not like Kamal Jumblat in his rhetoric of, you know, secularism, etc. No, he was much more pragmatic and much more balanced in his approach, you know, taking baby steps, etc. And he was balancing sectarian representation in the states as he was in the state administration as he was doing it. We had complete control of the Maronites. I mean, 50% of the state administration was controlled by the Maronites before he came in. And after that, it was more of a third uh, in terms of representation. And you had more Shiite Muslims coming in, which were not really part of the administration before. So he envisioned it as, you know, developing the state administration and also including more people in it to prevent marginalization of these people in the future. But the more important side in terms of how he impacted people's lives, apart from these jobs in the state, is that he hugely increased the development network of the state in Lebanon. His governments created hospitals and medical dispensaries in rural areas, extended roads and infrastructure networks and, and water, etc. into these areas. He had major projects planned for agriculture. They didn't really succeed, but he had a vision to develop the agricultural uh, sector because at that point, the banking sector had already started eating all the productive sector. And in the Shamawin era, where the bankers had no limits as well, the productive sectors were suffering. So he was very aware of that. And one of the most important things as well is that he had a big vision for education and supporting the Lebanese university. He created a faculty of law and a lot of, you know, middle class and low class uh, citizens were sending their children out to Lebanese university and through the Lebanese university getting scholarships to to go abroad, etc. So a form of an opportunity for social mobility for a lot of people. Yeah, it really is striking just the 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 level of development, right? And and if you look at the government formation decrees from that era, um, especially the uh, Karami's, I think fourth government overall, third government under Fuad Shahab in 1960, it is probably the most detailed Ban Wizari 
mm-hmm. I've ever I've ever seen. I, I I haven't looked at all of them, but like it it goes into minute detail of like we want to build this road from this town to this town. We want a, an electricity project here in this town. It it is so detailed. It it it, it to be very very impressive. So yeah, this was really the era of planning of the state having a role in economic development and in social development and also the era of building the state as a political alternative to the feudal politics and the sectarian politics that existed. I, I would I would push back on that just slightly though, because Fuad Shahab, yeah, he, he was creating this this state, right, that this administration that really did not exist or what was not empowered beforehand. But he was working within the system. And so you have, it, it wasn't like he was going up against all the Zuama or anything. No, he was working with select leaders. He was working with Jamayel. Mm-hmm. He was working with, uh, with, with Musa Sadr. He was working with these, with these people who were in the system to, to create, uh, you know, like the, the state apparatus and to do all of this investment and development and all of that stuff. So it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't like, the state that is removed from the mm-hmm. power structures that already exist, these sectarian power structures, no, it was very much a project that didn't try to meet these centers of power head on or anything. No, it co-opted them. Yeah, exactly. That was his vision, to co-opt them. But there was a big, big cost for this project, the state project. And this is the kind of the dark side of, of Fuad Shahab's legacy, the stain on his legacy, which is the big role that the army had to play in this whole game and the state becoming kind of a political agent, the, the military specifically, the Deuxième Bureau, Al-Maktab Thani, which is the military intelligence simply having a role in internal politics as much as in external uh, national security. This was one of the things that created the biggest backlash against Chab. But to understand why this happened or partly why this happened, in the end of 1961, the SSNP, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, attended a coup d'etat against Chab. It was actually on New Year's Eve, and they tried to, the army units that kind of are affiliated with SSNP took over the Ministry of Defense and kidnapped some officers. But then the coup immediately failed because loyal officers arrested these people. And Chihab's reaction was very, very harsh. He had already been criticized for his harshness and uh, the military intelligence intervention in politics, but now he took it to the next level. 12,000 people were arrested most of them from the SSNP, maybe all of them from the SSNP, and 300 were put on trial. And according to Fawaz Trabulsi, by the way, I'm taking a lot of information from Fawaz Trabulsi in this this whole narrative because he documents it day by day. So according to Trabulsi, torture became a standard practice in detention centers. And the military intelligence had a leading role in these detentions. So Fuad Shahab emerged from this coup d'etat with more support, more popular support, but also a more, you know, fierce iron hand. The army intelligence was even more powerful with more, a bigger role in politics. And this role was beyond, you know, what you think about as repressing dissent or whatever. It was, it was intervention in, in things like trade union politics and in, in local neighborhood politics and politics in, in peripheral areas or remote areas. Uh, it was a role in manipulating results to a certain extent in elections by buying support. A lot of accusations have been made against how huge the role of the Dozen Bureau was during this period of time. But a lot of people criticize it or describe it as the rule of the army over the political system. And after Schraub's term was done, I, I think it's important to note these these uh, this project, Shahabism, as it was called, both the good and the bad, didn't end. 
because the next president was a Shahabist, Charles Halou. And and so the, this project continued on, although not, not, not in a way that made Shahab very happy. Yeah, maybe we don't have to go, time to go into the details of Charles Halou's term, but one thing for sure is that Shahab was very disappointed with it. Charles Halou did not continue with the same kind of intentions and the same kind of agenda. And uh, some people say that Rashid Karami, who was also prime minister under Charles Halou, had more of a role in ruling the country than Shah Halou himself. So he was a weaker president, for sure, than Shahab was. And Shahab's disappointment was clearest in 1970. So when Shah Halou's term ended, people were saying, bring back Shahab, because, you know, he had the vision, he had the power, etc. Um, and Shahab said no. He declined. And he said, I'm not interested, after, after studying and analyzing all the details of this, I'm not going to return because... Lebanon is not ready for real change. We were trying to create real change, but the oligarchies are still controlling the economy. Uh, the politics is still done under, you know, sectarian uh, headlines, etc. These things that he was trying to fight against. And he said, so I'm not going to return. Lebanon is not ready. Well, I mean, he didn't completely stay out of it, though. Like his, his protege, Elias Sarkis, went up against Suleiman Frangie for the presidency. And, and this is sort of like the, the, the death blow is when Suleiman Frangia is elected president by one vote. Kamal Jumblatz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, was, and that is, and that was that the, is the end of Shahabism, yeah. basically. So Frangia comes, comes in. Uh, it's six years later, Elias Sarkis is elected. But by that point, we're in civil war and he really is unable to do much of anything. Yeah. The idea was after the 75, 77 the two years of the war that were considered the first part. People were thinking in 1977 that the war was ending, but then it lasted until 1990. So Elias was brought in kind of as, a, as an idea of, of another Shahab coming in and bringing people together, etc. Didn't work. Okay, so let's, let's uh, take a step back and look at the big picture. So Fawad Shahab, Shahabism, it, it, it's more than just like like you were talking about people's impression, like, oh, it's good. No, it's there are a lot of good things with like the state building, things like that, that are, are fondly remembered. There are other good things that aren't remembered as much. The creation of the NSSF, the National Social Security Fund. That's one thing that doesn't get as much attention as probably it deserves. Yeah, exactly. The NSSF one was one thing. And overall, the economic policy of Shab, the policy of the state intervening in, in development and being a main agent of development was very remarkable because before that was Shamoun, it was really just less fair capitalism. And this was how the identity of Lebanon was, was kind of established, a country where it's just a place for capitalism to prosper without the state really intervening. Shahab, on the other hand, has a very di- had a very different, you know, agenda. He wanted to empower the productive sectors. He wanted to keep an eye on the banking sector to div- to steer the economy in a certain direction. Although without being really interventionist, he was still a very liber- he was an economic l- economically liberal person. And overall, he had a liberal ideological background. But it was the serious attempt. I mean, what I think is very interesting about it is that it was a really serious attempt to change the material reality in which Lebanese people live as a way of pushing them forward beyond sectarian and confessional divisions. Although he was not really anti-sectarian as we established, he was a believer in this path, which is if people are less reliant on uh, zaims, on feudal and sectarian zaims, they will go beyond these divisions and they will have a different kind of politics, liberal politics. This is how he managed it, a liberal democracy. And this, I think, is something that today has come back to surface with a lot of independent politics 
happening on this uh, and people pushing for you know economic policies that are more uh, just development policies that are effective in order to just free people from the the chains of sectarian clientelism that exist so as someone who saw this in 1960 i think it's it's quite remarkable and and also though there's the bad part of the legacy though that we have to talk about and that is you know we we mentioned this the the Dizium bureau like that's that that's the thing that sticks in people's minds this is a this is a part of his legacy that is remembered but i think is not talked about a whole lot and and i think in a larger sense what shahabism stands for isn't necessarily so much what shahab did on the ground but it it speaks more to where lebanon is at right now so when people talk about shahabism they maybe know that there was overreach of the security services but it it's a less discussed aspect of it and to me that sort of mirrors modern society in Lebanon where you don't speak ill of the security agencies mm. right and going back to your point about like state building and development and all this stuff when we talk about shahabism today it seems as though well we're we're talking about the needs of Lebanon today and and then we throw this label shahabism on it but you know i i think that the way that it's remembered and the way that it is talked about today speaks a lot more about the current state of Lebanon and Lebanese politics and, and the state of development in the country than it does about what went on in the 1960s i agree i think we should distinguish between two things the the bad stuff which is like the 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 romanization of the army which is completely insane in Lebanon. It's it's so dominant. You cannot sp- criticize the army in any way. When people were saying the army was too harsh on, on refugees in Arsal, people were getting threats. We're getting death threats. My, my friends were getting death threats for protesting against that. I was I was so shocked by the amount of anger that anyone uh, that people would would practice against anyone who criticizes the army. Another thing is that the president of, you know, which we mentioned of army generals becoming presidents has not been good for Lebanon, let's be honest. I mean, maybe it makes sense for someone uh, at a certain period of time after a huge, you know, crisis or a civil war to come in and say, I'm just going to restore peace and unity. But as a habit, it doesn't make any sense. It's the opposite of political democracy, of real democracy, which is one person has an idea, a political ideology, a political agenda, and based on that, he becomes president. It doesn't make any sense to to just keep choosing the presidents who are consensus people because they are the leaders of the army, which is seen as a neutral institution. And then these people have no agenda and have really no real meaning in politics. Maybe the return of Michel Aoun and the presidency of Michel Aoun is kind of a combination of the two because he is a very political person. At the same time, he is an army commander. And now after Michel Aoun, we will see really what happens because the ironic thing is that the army commander of Lebanon, Michel Aoun, the biggest army commander maybe in the in the history of Lebanon, the most famous one, is now preparing a very political and a very non-unifying figure, Jibran Basile, to become the next president. So we're witnessing really an interesting moment on this end specifically. But to return to, to Shahab's legacy, I completely agree with you. It's more about what don't, we don't have today. This respect for the rule of law or for constitution for the constitution. You know, Shahab rejected to be president again after his term ended. He rejected uh, the some suggestions to amend the constitution to make him president for a second term. And on many instances, he proved that the constitution and respect for the constitution was his priority as part of his project to you know restore, restore the state and the, and the prestige of the state. And, you know, looking at the situation right now and people's rhetoric, Waini Yiddawli is a very slog- a very famous slogan in Lebanon, meaning, where is the state? 
and شرب النحاسس political party is called مواطنون ومواطنات في دولة citizens in a state this is how much this idea of the state project is needed today as you were saying it's what we don't have today is a respect for these basics of a good state that functions well and that cares for its people this is why Fuad Shab is remembered with so much romanticization I think Yeah, and and that's really just it. So I I think I hope that we were able to give our listeners a sort of more nuanced view of what Shahabism is, both in its like good things, the romanticization of it, and also like the bad things and the overlooked things, mm-hmm. uh, because it is a much more complicated legacy. As everything in Lebanon is, it's more complicated than it appears at first blush. Or anywhere exactly. Yeah, yeah. And on that note, I think that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.